Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. We're here today at PIR, Virginia International Raceway. It's one of my favorite racetracks in the whole country. You know, anytime I can run here, it's a thrill. I love the place. It's got the most exciting parts of the track. The S is here. And it's especially good today because I get to drive the 1969 Can-Am car. That's a little early for when I started racing. That was the year I did my very first pro race. So to get to drive a car that came out in that period that I was not able to drive, it's a real thrill. And you know, that's the thing about historic racing is you can come out and drive cars that you never had the opportunity to drive, that you can now come out and drive these cars and find out what the people during those periods had to uh, work with. And Tom Cantrell, the owner of the car, has been nice enough to let me drive it. And so far, it's been a really a lot of fun. working at Holman Moody, young, and uh, that was when they, they were racing Can-Am cars. It was that I, I was there from the start of it. Uh, Holman Moody had about five actual different ones, including this one which we're talking about. One was the 494, one was the Honker, one was the Allen Mann car, and two GT40s, Mark IVs, with no roof. Uh, I worked on every one of them. I, I, I did so many different things, but it's been 45 years ago, and I honestly cannot tell you one particular thing that I did. There were just so many different things, and I worked on all five of them. To build a replica of this car was a, a very big challenge, and I, I didn't do it myself. I was involved in it. Uh, but it's a, quite a challenge to do something of this uh, historical significance. Uh, not very many people get the opportunity to do this. It's uh, uh, quite a challenge, and... Uh, uh, I, that's what I do for a living, and I enjoy doing this. Now, the original car, right as the time being, we're 
assembling it back together. It's been 100% disassembled. We're putting it back together for museum. It's not going to be raced uh, because of the uh, monetary value of it. The, we built a replica of it, copied every part, uh, and to vintage race it, to make it something, if something were to happen, uh, you're not totally losing everything that you got. Uh, it took quite a while. It's a, I think about a three year job total to do it. Working on this car was a very good big privilege for me. Uh, it's nice to be able to work on something that's got some historical value to it, and it's a piece of history. It'll, it'll never happen again. I don't believe this kind of racing will ever come up again. And uh, to have worked on one or two, maybe even five of them, uh, is, is a great thrill for me personally. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! No doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is NASCAR Hall of Fame crew chief Ray Evernham, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Welcome, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here at the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfDreamMotorsports.com, and you can see us live here in the studio messing around with a microphone. Yeah, put a uh, floor jack on it. Uh, probably got to get a floor jack on it. Hey, that's a good one. We'll get one of those aluminum, one of those NASCAR jobbies. And, uh, oh yeah, don't forget to check out our website, GolfDreamMotorsports.com. Where you can find out uh, all about us. And don't forget to check out our uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars podcast page or history page where you can listen to all 506 or 7 shows. So we're doing pretty good. We're 10 years into this thing. We're doing good. And good evening, Bobby. How you doing? I'm doing well. How about you? Tommy, how you doing? I am great. Then I see Bill, Bill Cochran here, only in America. He's here with us. And, of course, he left one of his pillows here, so oh. I'm going to get a free pillow tonight. Uh, what's that pillow thing? Go ahead and do that, uh, Yes, this is uh, the MyPillow. The my it's pillow. a travel pillow. The travel <laughs> pillow. Uh, go to MyPillow.com, use promo code Bill, and you too can drive to Inverness with a nice travel pillow behind your back. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Boy, we got an exciting show for you. We have a legend coming on the show today. Um, I'm looking forward to having this gentleman on there. Of course, every year, in the last couple of years, we've been trying to do these summer specials, so we always kind of agonize, agonize. Over what we're gonna do, so got to be different themes. Uh, yeah, it's so. got to be different themes. So we did uh, what did we do? We did the summer music one with we, uh, the, we had Dick well, Dale on. That was the 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 um, anniversary of the summer love music kind of uh, uh, era. So that was the that was the original. That was the first one we did. Oh, okay. 2018, uh, I believe it was. Yeah. Or 17, one of those two. 17, and, somewhere uh, in there. 17, and then uh, we think we focused on TV shows. TV well, that shows? that was more in the fall. That was Startoberfest, which we'll do again this oh, year. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Startoberfest is when we put all the TV stars on from yeah. all the car shows in the... Yeah. But yeah. this this week we this year we got a we got a big ten year anniversary uh, okay so summer theme yeah so what I think we're doing we're gonna play around here um, Donald Osborne was on our show was it last week yeah yes. Donald okay you know he's a uh, he's a good friend of ours also an appraiser and he's on the uh, TV show with Jay Leno and Jay does Leno's a segment, garage yeah. Jay Leno's garage and he does the uh, assess and caress 
segment. Right. So him and I were talking the other day, and we're going to invite him back on because what we're going to do is we're going to do like a little special because everybody's been cooped up for the last three, four months on this. Um, in oh, Corona Land. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. I have my take on it, but nonetheless. And then, of course, we had Bill Warner on as, as, on our 10-year uh, anniversary show. And Bill is involved with Amelia Island. Obviously, he's the founder and chairperson, and our co the founder and chairman of the Amelia Island Concourse. And Donald is now the chairman and, I guess, curator. He's, like, the man in charge of the Audrain Concourse. Uh, uh, concourse, which is now going into its second year, and it's up in Newport, Rhode Island. And so we got to talking about concourse and car shows. And the thing, the beauty of a car show is, or the, the coolness of a car show is obviously the cool cars, and it's kind of like a trip down memory lane. It's kind of like music. When you listen to music, it always takes you back to a time and place. Well, if a car can do the same thing for you, and that's just what history does in general. It takes you back to a time and place. And... Um, Cars, on the other hand, are basically little time machines that you can get into and you can drive around and you can experience the whole thing. You know, Bill here was a few minutes ago. He was telling me about he grew up in a small town in upstate New York near Connecticut. And uh, one of the local Ford dealers had a ton of really cool AC Cobras. And he said Carroll Shelby used to wander in there all the time. So that was really cool. So, you know, he grew up, you know, seeing Cobras and Shelbys and obviously Corvettes and Porsches and cool cars like that. And he's a car enthusiast. And um, so... Cars mean something to everybody. I mean, the majority of people have an experience, whether you're in the back of a station wagon like I was a little kid growing up in Northern California, traveling all over the state. You know, that's what everybody did back in those days. You hopped and you loaded your station wagon up or... And you and travel today to do that with SUVs, right, Bobby? You've done that with us with a number of times. With a, tra with a my pillow travel with a, pillow. With a my pillow travel pillow. Pillow. Yeah, exactly. But at any rate, so having said that, um, the I think what we're going to do. This summer, maybe we're toying around with it, but but Don and I were talking about um, these really cool car shows and how important, significant a true concourse is, you know, and how important they are, you know, as opposed to just a regular car show. Because the beauty of a concourse is it brings out the best of the best. It truly does. I mean, they are beyond car shows. They're living, driving, breathing, exhaust emitting works of art. Is that probably a fair statement there, Bobby? And, yes. and they shine, and they're pretty, and they're just, uh, I mean, you know, when you start looking at the cars and the eras, you know, the turn-of-the-century cars. Let's say, for example, up in Newport, Rhode Island, which, by the way, is very significant from a historical standpoint because the Vanderbilts um, were, and one of the sons of the uh, original Vanderbilt family in the early 1900s, was responsible for one of the for racing in America. So it actually originated in New England, okay, and it was called the Vanderbilt Cup. And I think it was like around 1902, 1903, 1904. But over a few years, I think it was deemed kind of unsafe or whatever. But it took off really, really strong in Europe. Okay, so we had this America, European thing going on, and some amazing cars. And that's where names like you know the Van, der, uh, the um, Mercer, and 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 geez, I should know this. When Don comes on the show, he'll straighten me out. Okay, if Alan's listening, he'll probably call me up and straighten me out too. There's but, a lot of people out there. Yeah, there's a lot of people straighten me out. Okay, but anyway, but you know, like like Peugeot or Renault, I think Renault was. Was a, um, was a well-known name back then, and uh, Ford was out there, obviously, but there was other un uh, unusual names. I mean, these um, cars that were kind of like, and what's interesting is everybody was getting in the game because it was the Industrial Revolution. Anyway, so back aside from that, so Don and I, we're, we're going to do probably a couple segments. I'm probably going to have, I'm trying to get Sandra Button on. She's uh, the uh, chairperson for the um, Pebble, for the Pebble Beach Concourse. I'm going to try to get the gentleman on from uh, St. John's. Now, St. John's, 
Pebble Beach and Amelia Island are the three big ones here in the United States. So Villa Desta is the big one in Europe. That's in Italy, and that's the oldest, to my knowledge, the oldest ongoing uh, continuous concourse that is probably and it's on Lake Como, which is like on the Swiss-Italian border, and it's absolutely stunning. If you ever Google it, look at the pictures. The cars are amazing. I mean, it's just an, it's just incredible. But anyway, and then another segment that we're thinking about doing this year is uh, this over the summer, and we'll kind of like maybe rotate it a little bit, is maybe a segment on NASCAR, NASCAR Legends. So what we're going to do is we're going to commence this evening with uh, our series, I think, on, the, mm-hmm. on NASCAR Legends. And the gentleman we got coming on is – very much in tune with what even though he was the son of the legends he was there during the 60s when all the great car stuff the development the racing whether it was drag racing whether it was can-am racing whether it was road racing whether it was Le Mans whether it was Sebring whether it was uh, Road America whether it was Riverside whether it was um, drag strips in in and uh, and up north, you know, whether it was uh, kind of, you know, it's funny because sometimes my mind just uh, it's not dementia, ladies and gentlemen, so don't worry about that. But I, there's so m- my mind just goes like that, and I can't think of everything. Am I am I making any sense, Bobby? Uh, Probably not. Anyway, no, but that's that's the point. That was the point, I believe. <laughs> uh, that was the point. Right, but anyway, be sure to tune into Nostalgic Radio Cars every Tuesday night here on the Tantalk Radio Network and tell all your friends. See, it's really not working. <laughs> it's really not working. Okay. Back to the beginning again. Oh, back to the beginning. Oh my. I got Tommy's laughing. Tommy, you know what I think we better do? I think we better drop, uh, get that turntable thing going, and let's play a little. I know. How about some Deep Purple? That'll straighten me out here real quick. We got a little Speed King since we're speed freaks. Well, I'll disinfect him well. Yeah, he'll get the little, yeah, that the scrubby bubble. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgia Radio Cars. We'll touch that dial. Come back. It's got a lot more fun. We've got a lot more show going on, and we'll be here for the next 40 some odd minutes. Enjoy the best brews in Tampa Bay at Dunedin Brewery. Known as Florida's oldest microbrewery, they are always working to create a unique variety of craft beers for every taste. In addition, Dunedin Brewery features a full menu, including everything from their famous wings, burgers, salads, flatbreads, and more. Don't forget about their live music, including the Wednesday Night Players Jam. That's Dunedin Brewery, 937 Douglas Avenue in downtown Dunedin. Visit them online at dunedinbrewery.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Okay, we're back. Tommy, see if you can find uh, Speed King and just play part of it. I mean, because you got... We, 
We goofed that uh, one up. So, there's, you know what? On some of these songs, there's like the studio version, which is always what we try to look for in the show. We had a guest that told us about this, you know, why the songs, you know, are two minutes long for the radio and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And then, but most songs, when you look them up, they're when you pull them out of Radio Land. Uh, or out of our radio land. Our radio uh, land. Come a little, <laughs> come a little of the full length uh, songs. Usually. Yeah, but anyway, so if you can find the studio versions, usually they go right to the song, right to the drill. And of course, you know we are, we really, really dig the amazing guitar ability of uh, Richie Blackmore. In fact, I was reading something the other day. We were talking about um, top guitarists in the country here, and I was reading somewhere where um, what's the guy's name? May from uh, Queen. He was a guitarist for May for uh, Queen. That he supposedly unseated uh, Jimi Hendrix. Now I won't say that Jimi Hendrix was the greatest guitarist in the world, but he had a style that's un- is recognizable, you know, worldwide. I mean, when Jimmy get when he got on the guitar, and when he played, he just had a you know, it was kind of like a twangy wangy kind of like he just had a style about when he played. But you look at talent. I mean, you look at Eddie Van Halen, or you look at uh, Richie Blackmore, or. Um, even Ted Nugent, you know, a lot of these guys, they just were really, really, really good guitars. Um, Jimmy Page, uh, Jimmy, Jeff Beck, uh, Eric Clapton. I mean, those are the top guitars, but they're not just guitars, but, but they're also songwriters and musicians that really get into the whole thing, you know. And uh, Robbie Krieger from The Doors, you know, is another one, you know. Um, Ricky Medlock, we had Richie on. Richie's well, a super guitarist. And that's exactly know? who I was going to talk about. He's got a good, he made a good point about how, you know, a lot of them are good at a lot of things, but... You know, sometimes there's only a need and a band for, for, for your passion. Right. Tom, did you find it? He's still looking for it. Anyway, big shout out I to... I found it, but it, it I it's the same track. It's there's the same not track? multiple selections uh, for me to pull from, but I can pick it up from where we... No, 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 no. Well, Ken, somewhere in the middle of... But uh, all right, don't, we're going to go to worry about it. Here's what we're going to do. Um, big shout out to Kenny. I see Kenny's listening tonight. Hey, Ken. Uh, and we got a lot of other people that are listening here. Some of the names I recognize, some of them I don't. We actually had a guy from uh, Boston the other day. Yeah, yes, we did. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, you know, so that's cool. So you know, we want we want you to share. Hopefully, the social media thing's working for us. And uh, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and get our guests on. And I know what you can play. Wait a minute, so Speed King. Let's see what else is Highwayman. Oh, you forget already. Ma? The Beatles. Oh, the Is Beatles. Ring a bell? <laughs> oh, yeah, the Beatles. All right, so ring what we're going to do, there we go. Ding, 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 dementia setting in. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, no, that's not dementia. It's. Uh... Is that it's get back? Okay, yeah, all right, so here we're going to get back. Get back to the radio show. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio Cars, little Beatles, and I think Tommy's going to go ahead and call our guests on because. Uh, this guy's got a lot of stories, so you know sometimes you can't do. I mean, you can't really. I mean, if we have thirty minutes all the time. Yeah, we have thirty-minute interviews, but still, uh, you know, in thirty minutes, there's just so much. That's why we have to have him back on again. This gentleman has been on our show before, many, many years ago, but it's time to have him back and uh, part of the series here for the. Uh, yep. Legends of NASCAR. Hey, you're tuned into Nostalgic Getting Cars. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Fire that stereo up. Where you once belong. Get back. 
technology, innovation, tradition, performance. When you talk about racing, from early day stock car to drag racing to NASCAR, from Daytona to Le Mans, when you talk about racing, you talk about John Holman and Ralph Moody. H.A. Humpy Wheeler perhaps says it best. Holman Moody was to motorsports what the Packers are to the NFL, the Brooklyn Dodgers to baseball, and the Celtics to basketball. Gentlemen, start your engine! Just about everyone in racing agrees that the Holman-Moody combination was a perfect match made in racing heaven. Hooked on racing from an early age, and he was passionate about trucks, cars, parts, and building the perfect machine. Holman knew machines from the inside out, what worked and what didn't. He also knew people in relationships, what worked and what didn't. Ralph Moody was born in 1917 in Pawtown, Massachusetts. In the early 1930s, despite his parents' disapproval, Moody built and drove a Model T Ford with a 2x4 wooden chassis. Later, he'd race his number 28 car on nights and weekends while operating repair shops during the day. The Holman Moody duo came together in the mid-1950s. When it became clear that Ford was getting off the racetrack, John and Ralph formed the Holman Moody Partnership in 1957. Moody refinanced his airplane and Ford accepted their $12,000 bid for Ford's surplus race equipment. Holman Moody expanded rapidly and set up operations on the grounds of Charlotte Douglas Airport. Four buildings provided space for fabrication, engine building, preparation, and storage. The location also provided occasional use of the runway. But the success of Holman Moody is measured beyond the checkered flag. What they feel it was as important as who. Holman Moody developed the first stock car chassis. They introduced the roll cage and driver seat support for added driver protection and safety. Their 65 Galaxy was a classic and included a single overhead cam 427 engine. They made extraordinary advances to shocks, the brakes, and accessories. There was the Challenger 1, 2, and 3. Ford Falcons and Drag Racers, the Can-Am. But their signature in racing history was, and still is, the GT40. Okay, we're back, and you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Thank you, uh, Mr. Essel Ford. And it's time to introduce our very special guest for the evening. The gentleman's been on our show before, and he's part of the legendary NASCAR family uh, and team of Holman Moody. I'm delighted to welcome back Lee Holman. Lee, how you doing, buddy? I'm fine. I hope you are. I'm doing very, very good. So I played that little clip because I thought that would uh, help us segue into some of the uh, early days of uh, Holman Moody. And... You know, the thing was is that you and I were talking a little bit a while ago, and we didn't really – the last time you we were on the show, we didn't get a chance to talk about it too much. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, early days of the Falcon, the Challenger 1, 2, and 3, and then when you had the uh, kind of prototype Mustang. That was kind of an interesting story. So why don't you share that with us? Well, in the early 60s, um, Ford was noticing that the Falcon economy car was not selling very well, and there was a – a marketing fellow that worked for Ford named George Merwin, and he was in, given a, a charge to try and make the Falcon a more sellable car, and he came up with the idea of entering some of the European rallies um, because um, he knew that they were coming up with a small V8 from the Fairlane, which was also used in the Cobra later on. And so he came to Holman & Moody and asked us to develop um, a series of rally Falcons to run in the international rallies in Europe, the Monte Carlo, um, the Tour de France, the Sophia Liège, 
Um, there were just a number of international rallies that didn't get very much play in American press. But the thought was that if we could get a Falcon to, to perform well in, in some sort of uh, competition, that it might um, attract a sportier uh, audience in America. And so we developed the early D8 Falcons and developed the early Falcon Sprint. We actually had a Falcon Sprint a year before Ford did because they just copied our prototype to make the production car. Um, I had fun because at um, 17 years old, I had had the job of driving a V8 Falcon to high school in 62 when there were no V8 Falcons. And it was kind of... Kind of fun to be the only kid on the block with a, with a, a V8 Falcon that could outrun just about anything there. Now, when you built that car, the the Falcon, even though it's a small car in America and basically considered a compact, that car is fairly big compared to the European cars. How did that car? I mean, how competitive was that car in Europe compared to? You know, like you had Ford Cortinas over there, and you probably had some Opals over there, and you probably had some Renaults and some of the other cars that were out there running around. Uh, how- well, the, the, the funny thing was, um, some of the rallies that, that we were advised to go on, like the Sofia Liage, which is run through Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. um, the cars failed miserably because the suspension and um, the shock towers, it beat the shock towers right out of the engine compartment. It oh. was just horrible. And we were doing that with American mechanics. Eddie Pagan and some of our crew was, were over there living in France, working on the cars in a garage beneath the Hotel de Paris. And um, it was um, kind of odd for the for the Southern boys to be over there competing. <laughs> and, and then the cars failing. And so we reworked and redesigned and came up with the Monte Carlo brakes which was later used on the Mustang so successfully, and all the suspension components, and we modified the engines and stuff. And in the end of the day, the the real um, competition was for the Monte Carlo Rally, and we entered uh, a number of cars, and, and the Monte is funny because it starts from seven or eight different places in Europe. And depending upon where you start from, the route you take some years it's snowed in. You can't complete the rally. Other years you have a smooth run. And so it's a real interesting event to be on. But we won all of the special stages with the Falcon V8 and a driver named Bo Lungfeld, who was just phenomenally quick, a very qualified Finnish driver. And um, that gave Ford a big heads up because we were doing that in 63. Um, and 64 gave Ford a heads up on the, on the Mustang, that the Mustang needed to have, instead of a, um, the original prototype was supposed to have just a, a six-cylinder, and then later on in the year they would offer the V8 as an option. They found that that little car, the Falcon, with a V8 was a hoot to drive and, and very quick um, and got the fuel economy and was safe. And so the early Mustangs got switched off over to a, a V8 engine and made them into a performance car as well. You were telling me that you got the um, that the you had guys had got some body and white prototype must or pre-production Mustangs that you uh, actually built for rallying in Europe in uh, what May of '64, I think you said. 
Well, the, the rally was in May of 64, but we got them um, in January of 64. We got uh, probably 15 or 20 pre-production Mustangs, and we had to build a, a closed-off area in the, in the shop, and then we had to put some in containers to fly them over to Europe because our partner in, in England, Alan Mann, um, was by that time running the the Mustang or the Falcon program for us in Europe because we found that um, the American mechanics from Charlotte, North Carolina didn't know how to deal very well with passports and and the problems of getting around Europe. Um, I've got a wonderful letter from Eddie Pagan, one of our old race drivers that was over there managing the project, and he, he's saying, would you please, when you send the starters and the the alternators and the other parts we need for the Falcons. Could you put some some um, uh, Vienna sausages and <laughs> some pork and beans in there? Because this French food is killing it. <laughs> they were staying at a five-star hotel. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and the food was killing them. Uh, <laughs> it, it was difficult for us to do it. And Alan Mann has, was a very qualified uh, race driver and team manager. And so he took over the management of them and modified the Falcons to comply with the European rough roads where the cars jumped over ice hills and jumped over this and, and ran into that. And, and he adapted those Falcon parts directly over to the Mustang because that chassis was, was almost identical to the Falcon and all the running gear and the brakes and the shocks were all the same. And so... He put that on there, and we finished just as the Mustang was being introduced in America. The Holman and Moody Allen Man Mustangs finished one, two, three in every special stage and and finished one, two, three in the overall event of the Tour de France, which was the equivalent of a, a Monte Carlo Rally or a Daytona 500 in America. Um, and the, the the funny thing was Shelby was on that same event with the Cobras and was not able to do much. The, the cars broke and uh, failed to finish and had other issues. But since he was already a division of Ford Motor Company, they had taken him over. Um, he asked the Ford Racing people if he could have one of our Mustangs. And uh, Jack Passano had us fly the winning Tour de France car direct from Paris to California. And that's what Shelby copied to make the GT350. Interesting. Interesting. And, but he never gave home to Moody or Alan Mann any, any credit for that development work. And they did some other things to their cars that were, that were different. But when you look at the, G, the history of the GT350, it came out of the box winning races. That's true, and it did. And the new car doesn't do that. Yes. Um, our Mustangs came out of the, the box winning races because they were just Falcons with a cuter-looking body on. <laughs> now, it's interesting. You mentioned the export brace. Now, in Europe, the Mustang, because of copyright or name name licensing, they were referred to as T5s. But And I was a kid living in Europe back in the day. And in the 60s, and I remember um, seeing Mustangs there, particularly from between 65 and 71. And one thing I noticed about the cars over there, besides the T5 badge on the side, they had an export brace and a Monte Carlo bar. And later, yep. the Shelbys, so basically you guys 
pioneered the export brace and and the Monte Carlo bar, if I understand you correctly, because all the export Mustangs, okay, had the export brace because it was required because of the you know instability with the shock towers, you know, because they kind of flexed a little bit. So then the Monte Carlo yep. bar triangulated that and then reinforced that whole uh, that whole engine bay area. So uh, kudos to you guys. We didn't know that. It's a piece yeah. of history. Yeah, and we developed the first disc brakes to go up on the front of them. Oh, really? Um, and the engine modifications to to go from the 260 to the 289 to the Hypo 289. Um, it ended up, it was kind of funny, we, we homologated the Falcons in 65 um, with uh, steel exhaust headers, two four-barrels, bigger brakes, um, a fiberglass dash, a number of highly modified things, very unusual. Um, and uh, uh, Chrysler said, in order to, for those things to be legal, in order for us to run those modifications, Ford had to make 100 of them. Well, um, we only actually made 15, mm-hmm. but George Merwin, the Ford marketing guy, was able to fly back from Paris, where the um, or Geneva, where the FIA had their home office, and he was able over a weekend to generate falsely all of the paperwork, <laughs> all of the custom stamping, all of the seals saying that the cars had been imported from Canada for the other 85 cars that never existed. Uh-huh. And the uh, FIA caught wind of the subterfuge, a uh, little cheating going on here, and... Um, disallowed the cars but what was funny was those homologation papers the FIA certification of this is what the car is supposed to be like yeah ended up being the only paperwork that survived from the period so when when people started vintage racing the only paperwork they could find were the 65 Falcon stuff which had two four barrels lighter weight fiberglass body panels was lighter than a uh, Mustang could be because the Mustang had new homologation papers, uh, bigger brakes. And so for the first few years of vintage racing, the Falcon was the preferred car because it could outrun the Mustangs because we had cheated, and that was what the approved version of a Falcon was. (laughs) Well, in reality, when you did the Falcon, was it... Was it truly lighter? What is it? What is was it a better race car than a Mustang? No, no, no. But as WSC Steel said, if a thing is worth having, it's worth cheating for. And so we we were there to make Ford look good with their Falcon. And another thing that was kind of odd for the Monte Carlo Rally, we won all the special stages, which are high speed laps at different circuits. They, as the rally progressed from the north of England or north of Germany or Finland or wherever it came from, as you came to a regular racetrack, you'd do a special stage, a special lap around it. And our Falcons won every special stage, but they lost points in, in a rally if you were two seconds late or two seconds early to a, a stopping stage, you get points. And our our rally teams were not quite as good in managing the, the over-the-road part, and so we didn't win the rally, but we got 
so much press worldwide because of the Falcon winning all these special stages and doing the quick lap at Monaco and all of that, that BMC with their little uh, Mini Cooper that actually won the Monty in, in 64 took out ads saying, Ford didn't win, we did, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. You don't, often, you don't often see that in magazines. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about but, the Ch- Challenger 3. I didn't know much about the, Ch- the... So these rally cars we're talking about, are they considered Challenger 1, 2, and then this, the... No, race? no, they, those, were just, those were just rally cars. Okay. And there, there were 15 of them, and of the 15, there's probably 20 that are still around because of that many fake claiming that they were original rally cars. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the way it is with all of these collector cars. But we also were sports car racing. We were we were running. We had the Galaxies running in Europe with the 427 lightweight Galaxies, and we had other project cars racing here and there. And one of the ideas was to come up with a a, a Falcon race car. And so we took a seven a, a 61 and made Challenger one, which was a standard body V8 Falcon, and it was raced at. Nassau, at Sebring, at Daytona, um, usually with Jocko Giacomo Sr. driving the car, or, or Walt Hanskin, another famous driver, who unfortunately lost his life at Le Mans in, in testing. But um, that car was so successful and so competitive that we decided to make a, a, a prototype uh, Falcon. So we took a regular Falcon, a 62, and took five or so inches out of the center belt, just like you had a belt on your waist and you cut the area around the belt and dropped your body that much. We we sectioned the body to drop it down and then put a lower windshield on it with a fastback aluminum roof that went all the way back over the trunk. And that car um, was used in the New York uh, Ford display for the New York car show, and then we raced it and ran it a couple of times. The most notably, it raced at Nassau in a, um, the sports car races there, and it, I've got pictures of it on the grid with Ferrari GTOs and Ferrari TDFs around it, and the race was run in two heats. The, the Falcon won the first heat, beating the Ferraris and the very first Cobra. Wow. Ran that. And in the second heat, uh, the next day, um, it was leading the race, again, beating the Ferraris and the, and the Cobras, and the fan belt broke and came off, and so the car overheated and had to withdraw. But um, it, it, when you say Ford versus Ferrari, we've already did that with, <laughs> with the Falcon. And toasted them, and and they were not very happy because at the time the Falcon was a three thousand dollar car and the Ferrari was a twenty thousand dollar car. Interesting. So, what was it like for you as a kid? You know, and I'll say kid, teenager, have being a, you know your dad, you know Holman Moody fame, you know going to the races, you know getting to drive these really really cool cars, hanging out at the shop, meeting these legendary race car drivers. I mean, did it? Did it resonate with you at the time, or was it just like uh, just a normal everyday thing? I enjoyed it, but my father was a, a different individual. Um, he would tell both my brother and I repeatedly it was his name on the door, not ours. And it was very difficult 
working with him because my brother caught one of our employees stealing some stuff and fired the guy, rightfully so. Well, my father got mad and hired the guy back and gave him a raise. Oh. Um, which after that made it very difficult for my brother to, to manage the department he was supposed to be managing. Um, and uh, he couldn't deal with it, so he, my brother ended up going off to work for Microsoft on computers and stuff and was quite successful at that. But I, I'm able to just slough stuff off, um, and I enjoy the fact that I can go anywhere in the world and I'm in the motor industry racing industry, I'm greeted with open arms because Holman and Moody achieved more in more different forms of racing than any other company ever has. Um, the only thing that we didn't do was Indianapolis, and I'm thankful for that because my experience in Indy was always fairly traumatic. Um, friends have been killed there, Sweet Savage and and all that. And I, you know, I, I just assume not be involved with with the old form of Indianapolis, but I can go to Ferrari. They greet me with open arms. I can go to Porsche anywhere. We actually, Holman and Moody were approached by Momo because uh, he wanted to be able to outrun the factory Porsches. Well, you couldn't outrun the factory Porsches in a factory Porsche. So he had Holman and Moody modify his 330 turbo and he won the championship in, in the Porsche that Holman and Moody built for him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, Porsche? Holman and Moody's got a Porsche, Porsche connector? Oh, yeah. And really? the, next, the next year, Porsche wouldn't give him a car, a new car to race, unless he turned that car over to him so they could see what we had done. What year was this? Similarly, oh, I, that was the mid-'80s. Really? Um, but Momo is famous for the steering wheels and all that. But, but um, we built a Mazda RX-7 for Pierre Honiger that raced well, raced at Le Mans. Uh, finished well. Um, we did a Ferrari for uh, Kirk White that, that David Hobbs drove um, at uh, Febring, and, and the other Ferrari we did, a Daytona Coupe Ferrari, um, Pete Brock and Dan Gurney drove and won the Cannonball Baker one year with it. So we've, we've messed with other cars and, and did other things a little bit, but our, our main fix was the Ford products, and we did NASCAR with the sports car racing with the Galaxies and the Falcons and the Mustangs, and then we did the drag racing with the Falcons and the Mustangs, and we did the Baja Broncos with Coleman and Moody Strop. Uh, my dad had worked for Bill Strop and later decided that he wanted to own the company, so he bought out Bill Strop and and um, dumped a lot of money into that and and later decided to get out of Holman and Moody's drop. And, uh, but all the Baja Broncos were during the Holman and Moody ownership era. Um, so we had, we pretty much acted as hitmen for Ford as they'd say, well, we want to try and get some advertising for this brand of cars or for that brand of cars. What can you do? And we would go racing, win the event, and send them a bill. Interesting, interesting. Um, you mentioned that the Galaxies, and I think I've seen pictures of So the, you took the lightweight Galaxies to Europe in the early 60s, and they ran on road courses over there? They did, and again, I got to have a little bit of personal pleasure out of it 
because my dad handed me um, a wad of $100 bills, pointed me to a 63 Galaxy with straight exhaust pipes coming out the side, um, and said, this car has to be at New York Kennedy Airport tomorrow at 4. Get it there. And so I drove a 427 four-on-the-floor lightweight Galaxy um, from Charlotte up to Kennedy Airport. And the only only real hassle I had was in Virginia, where a Virginia Highway Patrolman stopped me and said, Son, that car sounds like an airplane, and we don't allow that in Virginia. You're going to jail. And um, I showed him the paperwork with Henry Ford II, name on it and that i was just a delivery driver and that i wouldn't come back the car was being exported and i had all those export documents with me and he said well don't come back and um uh, so i got to drive it up but i can tell you that going through the holland tunnel with a 427 galaxy with straight exhaust was a thrill (laughs) i can only imagine wow Speaking of 427s, so how did those cars do competitively in Europe? Again, the Galaxy is a huge car. It's a big motor, seven liters, four speed. So, and then when you, these lightweights, how much lighter were they than the production Galaxy? They were a couple of hundred pounds lighter. But what we did, we found that for road racing, that you were better off with less horsepower. Oh, really? So that you could attach the power to the ground, and so. We basically detuned the engines a bit and ran a taller, higher, or a lower ratio gear. Instead of running a 411 or something like most racers are used to, we ran a 325 or a 350. And you'd only turn the engine maybe 6400, but you could come off the corner without the rear wheel spinning. So you could come off the corner and and scoot. The only problem we had with the Galaxies... um, the, everybody in Europe was used to revving the engines ten, you know, ten thousand, but but eight thousand or eighty five hundred, um, and um, so they they all wanted to hear the engine turning that tight, and the Galaxy at that time had drum brakes, and they were not up to the challenge. The drum brakes were a problem, so when we had Dan Gurney or Jackie Stewart or. Uh, one of the real qualified drivers in the car, they knew how to treat the brakes nicely and survive it. Um, we had an embarrassing situation in Australia where Sir Gwen Bailey was running his Galaxy, and he ran out of brakes, and the car impaled itself on the guardrail, the big uh, treated post that held the, the armor all guardrail on the side. And because of Australia, they didn't have very many cars that size either. At the racetrack, there were no wreckers big enough to pick up the Galaxy. And so they put hay bales around it and considered it a hazard of the circuit. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) It couldn't be moved. But, um, yeah, they were very successful. And we uh, we did a 64 Falcon, or not Falcon, Fairlane road race car as the prototype for NASCAR um, for a unibody car and Fireball Roberts drove that at Daytona in a preliminary race for the Continental in 64 and finished second behind A.J. Foyt and Cooper Monaco um, and we have since, my company uh, Home and Immediate Home and Automotive 
have built a couple of the 42764 Fairlanes, and it's kind of fun when you when you send a little family sedan over to Europe to run at the Nurburgring, which is 13 miles around it, and uh, we had quality drivers. The owner of the car knew the track very well, um, but running against Porsche 930 turbos and GT40 Mark Ones and Cobras, our Fairlane lapped the field in two hours. Whoa. Whoa. Pretty impressive, especially at the Newburgh Ring, probably one of the toughest tracks. Like you said, it's 13, 14 miles long. That's a long track. Let me yeah. ask, let me ask and, you. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we got a few minutes left. Um, but when, when, uh, so if, if people want to find out more about you now, what exactly is Holman, what is Lee Holman up to, and what is Holman and Moody doing today? So I did not know that you got involved in, in developing of these other sports cars. I, I kind of always associated with you with NASCAR, drag racing, and a few things like that, but I didn't know you got involved in some of this other stuff. And I know you're a car enthusiast because I see it some of the vintage races and stuff, so uh, I know your expertise kind of runs uh, runs the gamut a little bit. Well, my goal was to... I was annoyed that my father gave all his GT40s away, and so when I took over Home and Moody, my goal was to build myself a Mark II GT40, a real one, not something that was kind of like it, Mm-hmm. Uh, or a replica. I wanted a real one with every piece exactly as they were done. And I'm very proud that I was able to successfully do that and then race it myself and be competitive with it and then sell it at a profit and then have the customer resell it and double his money. Um, it, it, I take great pleasure in the fact that I've, I've built a car that, that other people want to have, but we're still building them. We still have Mark IIs under construction. Um, we still do just about everything we did before. The only thing new that we've done, that's the Ford asked us to make some modern Mustangs. And we had, up until six, uh, 2014, had not really had any modern cars in the building. We were locked in the 60s. And we ended up doing uh, 28 of the Home and Moody TDF limited edition Tour de France Mustangs that were well-received and, and sold quite well. And we continue to do supercharger kits and packages for uh, the modern Mustang. Um, just as people decide they want to have something done, we, we take the project on and try to do it. We're helping some people in Europe that have to make uh, fake Mark II GT40s come up with the missing parts and pieces that no one else has so they can at least get their cars running. Um, the GT40 Mark IIs suffer from the same thing the Rally Falcons did. There were only 13 made, and of the 13, there's almost 25 cars claiming that history. <laughs> but we, pro- we provide parts and pieces, and uh, we sell T-shirts and decals. Our website is holmanmoody.com, uh, fairly simple, and we do a tremendous business. A lot of it, we've had an increase because of the Ford versus Ferrari Wars movie, and which was an entertaining but not anywhere near correct <laughs> version of the, what we there because I was there. I was at Le Mans '65 and '66, so I know what happened. But um, it, it's kind of fun to do it, and I, I find it fun to talk to people. But I need to warn the public that there are people out there making fake homemade T-shirts and fake decals and fake stuff. And we try very hard to police to stop them, but it's, it's hard to do it and and expensive to do it. And there's 
there's one fellow in Canada that was selling Holman and Moody T-Bird decals, and he misspelled competition on the decal. And I found out about it because somebody returned them to me wanting credit for a a decal that was bad, and he didn't buy it from us. He bought it from this idiot in Canada. (laughs) If you you want something Holman and Moody or want to know about Holman and Moody, call Holman and Moody. We're in the phone book. We're on the web. And we're there. We're open every day. We actually never have been closed during this whole um, virus thing because in North Carolina, they said automotive uh, shops were exempt from the shutdown. So we're still doing it. And we've got Mark II's under the construction. And I've got a 63 Holman and Moody Galaxy there that was used by a number of different drivers. Um, So, yeah, we we love to have visitors. We love to have people come out and visit. and buy a t-shirt or look at just look at what we have and shake your hand and go out well lee we are up against the clock i want to thank you very much if you people want to find out more about you homeandmoody.com in the meantime lee thank you very much i want to definitely have you on again i appreciate it great stories you take care and uh, we'll see you some of the races sometime in the meantime i want to thank all my listeners for tuning into nostalgic and new cars don't forget every tuesday night between 7 8 p.m. here on the Tantalk Radio Network. Don't forget to check out our website, golfstreetmotorsports.com. Follow us on some of the social media, Facebook, Instagram. And I want to see some of the car shows. Get out and drive your cars. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.